A mercenary force with European operators captures a diamond mine from rebel control in Africa. Who did they capture it for? Who told them to conduct that operation? Who benefits from it? Who is accountable if it all goes wrong? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome back to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer. And this episode continues a deeper look at modern mercenary warfare. Who controls mercenaries is the big question for this podcast. We can discuss what they do, the individuals that work as mercenaries, or how they go about their business. They would not exist, however, without someone willing to pay for their services and someone else who is ready and able to command and control them for that customer. This question is at the heart of the real danger that mercenaries and quasi-mercenary organizations present. Bear with me while I try to explain why this is so difficult to answer. I'll begin with restating some definitions that I use in these podcasts. As discussed before, the definition of mercenary in international law is unworkable. Even the UN's Working Group on Mercenaries says so. As stated previously, I use the definition in the Cambridge Dictionary, which is a soldier who fights for a foreign country or group for pay. The criteria, therefore, are fighting or direct participation in hostilities or combat directly supporting a national military establishment other than that of the individual citizenship, and for pay, regardless of who pays them, and the difficulties in determining that is part of what this podcast is about. The other term I use is quasi-mercenary organization, or QMO. This term applies to all groups that provide services that include combat operations, that are not part of a national army. As covered previously, there may be legitimate QMOs, regularly registered, public-facing corporations, which operate under the applicable laws of their home states and the states where they operate. There are also other QMOs where ownership is unclear, without a legal corporate entity, where accountability under the international law and applicable national laws may be unclear, non-existent, or denied by sponsoring entities. This accountability is the heart of the problem with mercenaries and QMOs. The existing laws of war are very specific about who, exactly, is allowed to engage in combat. And combat, remember, involves state-sanctioned and internationally sanctioned killing of people and destruction of property. According to the Hague Convention of 1907 and largely repeated in the first additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions, the laws, rights, and duties of war apply not only to armies, but also to militia and volunteer corps, fulfilling the following conditions. 1. To be commanded by a person responsible for his subordinates. 2. To have a fixed distinctive emblem recognizable at a distance. 3. To carry arms openly and four, to conduct their operations in accordance with the laws and customs of war. It is the first element that is critical to all the rest. This is called command responsibility. This is the element that enables accountability of the individual fighting and the responsibility and accountability of those commanding those persons both in fighting and in preparation for fighting and ultimately accountability for the state employing those fighting forces. It is the difficulty in applying that first element that makes using mercenaries dangerous to peace and stability, 
and so attractive to those who use mercenaries as a tool of statecraft. The Montreux document specifically addresses this concern as the last element of its first part. That first part describes existing legal obligations for states regarding the use of private military and security companies in armed conflict. The section reads, Superiors of PMSC personnel, such as governmental officials, whether they are military commanders or civilian superiors, or directors or managers of PMSCs, may be liable for crimes under international law committed by PMSC personnel under their effective authority and control. So who is calling the shots for the mercenary is very important, both for the question of whether a QMO is acting within applicable international law and for accountability of the actions of a mercenary or QMO. As you might imagine, it is in the best interests of some people or governments to make that question very difficult to answer. Let's begin with what should be the easiest type of QMO to address, the legitimate public-facing QMO, such as STEP, who I discussed in previous episodes. As I said, these organizations are properly registered with publicly available information about ownership, boards of directors, and applicable national regulations. The contracts may be with private organizations, such as for the security of extractive sites and other protective security that does not include direct participation in hostilities. These companies, of course, also enter into contracts for services to governments which may include direct participation in hostilities. Otherwise, they'd be PSCs, not QMOs. These contracts should be clear about abiding by relevant national and international law to include the law of war. If there is any sovereign immunity, such as exists with members of the armed forces, where such sovereign immunity exists, it's not really universal, then that would also be in the contract. As mentioned before, QMOs such as STEP, Executive Outcomes, and past organizations such as Sandline secured enlistments or commissions for their personnel for the duration of the contract. This assured accountability and the full implementation of the first requirement for a privileged belligerent under the law of war. In fact, the Montreux document even addressed this provision in its existing legal obligations portion, saying where a PMSC is incorporated by a state into its regular armed forces, then the state assumes responsibility for the conduct of the PMSC, including violations of international humanitarian law, human rights law, or other rules of international law committed by PMSCs or their personnel. Not all QMOs operate so transparently not even some properly registered public-facing companies. The contract may in fact be publicly available and legally correct, but it may not be clear who the QMO is working for. That is, the person who is paying for the services might not be the one calling the shots. I will give you an example. The story is true, but the names are changed to keep me out of trouble. Country A has a national policy interest in seeing anti-piracy operations curtailed in a certain area of the world, but for political reasons doesn't want to be seen as directly involved in a particular anti-piracy program. So, Country A transferred foreign assistance money to Country B. Country B then encourages Country C to engage a certain QMO based in Country B, but with ties to Country A. Country C then contracts with that QMO. 
Country B then transfers the money it received from country A to country C to fund the contract with the QMO. Now, everything was actually done well and proper, but without any direct attribution or accountability to country A. The question is, who called the shots? Who approved the training and deployment program? Who placed the limits on what the QMO could or could not do? Country C, who engaged the QMO? Country B, which is the home state of the QMO and who facilitated the contract? Or Country A, whose policy interests funded the activity? Personally, I don't know the answer to that question. Even following the money might not lead us to the answer of who the QMO was really working for. Command and control of other QMOs, and particularly Russian QMOs, can be even more complex. For Russian QMOs, you might say the answer is easy. We all know Vladimir Putin calls the shots. As early as 2012, Putin said that private military companies could potentially become an important tool of foreign policy without the state's direct participation. One of the more legitimate Russian QMOs, RSB Group, says on its website that the primary beneficiary of PMC operations is the Russian state. Its CEO, Oleg Kriniston, who is a former KGB officer, claims that his company operates in consultation with the Russian government. Well, knowing something and proving something are two different things, and proving can be very difficult. The International Court of Justice has held that sponsor states can be held accountable for the actions of non-state armed groups, but if, and only if, it can be proven that the state exercised effective control over the actions of that non-state armed group. Therefore, it is important to Moscow that such proof is not allowed to exist. In tracing command responsibility, we start with the understanding that not all unaccountable QMOs are Russian, and not all Russian QMOs are unaccountable. Aside from Wagner, who I will address in a bit, other Russian QMOs include Eagle Anti-Terror, RSB Group, Moran, Enot, and Patriot. Some of these have legal registration to provide private security services inside of the Russian Federation. Military-related activities outside of Russia, however, are illegal under Russian law. A 2018 report to the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment says that to circumvent this restriction, some of these companies have foreign registrations in Argentina, Belize, Cyprus, and other countries. These companies are not reported to directly participate in hostilities. Nevertheless, this overseas registration creates ambiguity that facilitates using these entities to pursue Russian national interests while maintaining legal deniability by Moscow. Wagner is even more opaque. As cited previously, some researchers, including Dr. Candace Rondeau, maintain that the Wagner Group no longer exists as a discrete entity. Rather, it's a convenient catch-all term for operations that may involve direct participation in hostilities without legal attribution to Russia. The use of Russian combat provider organizations is simultaneously cryptic and obvious. Persons move from one named QMO, like Enot and Moran, to others such as Patriot, Wagner, and Siwa. At least one such organization, called Turan, was later proven to be completely fictitious, pure disinformation. 
It's quite possible that the organizations that do exist operate like matrix teams or task forces cobbled together for a particular mission. Dr. Rondeau points out that the man attributed to commanding Wagner, Dmitri Utkin, whose battlefield call sign was Wagner, has not been seen in public since December 2016. He was, however, more recently listed as Managing Director of Concord Management, a shell organization alleged to provide logistic support for Wagner. It may be better to call them Wagner-type operations while keeping in mind that Wagner itself may not exist. If these teams are so chimeral, how can we assign responsibility or accountability? How can we identify who is in control? Well, for Russia, that's precisely the objective. Wagner-type operations can be an illustrative example. One way to trace responsibility, as in the example of the non-transparent but legitimate QMO activity I described earlier, is to follow the money. But that may not be so easy in the case of Russian irregular forces. In 2019, Dr. Kimberly Martin wrote in Post-Soviet Affairs that Wagner was set up specifically to avoid that kind of attribution. She proposed that Yevgeny Prigozhin was selected by the Russian general staff to conduct such operations in support of Russian national interests. Prigozhin is not an official member of the Russian government, but an independent entrepreneur. To break the finance link between Moscow and activities under Prigozhin, these operations were required to be self-funded. As a result, Moscow brokers deals with supported governments to contract for military support services through one of the management or investment firms nominally under Prigozhin's control. Firms such as Concord Management, which I already mentioned, Lobaya Invest, and Evropolis are among these. These firms are often funded through shares of natural resources found by these management investment firms in the country being supported or protected by Wagner-type operations. Of course, what is true for operations under Prigozhin's shell companies is equally true for more legitimate companies such as RSB. These companies are sometimes allowed to operate with a certain degree of independence, either to allow the oligarchs to increase their profits or to secure additional funding for paramilitary operations supporting Russian policy objectives. This sometimes leads to conflict among these QMOs, or rather their management firms and the oligarchs controlling them. Both the Norwegian report I mentioned earlier and Dr. Martin write that there is a concern over how much direct control Moscow actually has over these QMOs and who in Moscow controls them. For example, while Prigozhin's organizations are aligned with the Army General Staff and supported by the GRU, RSB Group, as I indicated earlier, is aligned with the FSB, the successor organization to the KGB. This can actually work in Moscow's favor as the uncertainty of the autonomy of Russian QMO operations can be used by Moscow to cloud accountability, cast doubt among Western countries about its involvement, and delay or undermine any effective response. Adding to Russia's denial of responsibility is that it is willing to punish Russian QMO operatives when things go wrong. In 2013, an earlier QMO called the Slavonic Corps was soundly defeated in Syria. Its personnel were then arrested, interrogated by the FSB, and charged with violating Russia's anti-mercenary laws. Curiously, 
One of those charged was Dmitry Utkin, who, a year later, was leading Wagner. There are other ways to find out who's the boss. Russia continues to make use of QMOs in its currently frozen conflict in eastern Ukraine. Wagner operatives in eastern Ukraine in 2015 were flown in on Russian military transports, received new equipment from Russian stores, were evacuated to Russian military hospitals, and some were even awarded medals for courage in official ceremonies. Actions like this can be used to assign state responsibility, but only if the international community is willing to do so. Then we have freelance mercenaries. I've discussed the former French mercenary Bob Dinar, who, it is alleged, really took his orders and received support from the French Secret Service. But sometimes he seemed to go off on his own. So in some cases, the question is not really who directs a particular mercenary group, but who controls that group today. Recent headlines bring attention to the assassination of the president of Haiti by a group of mostly Colombian mercenaries. But the whole event raises more questions about command and control of freelance mercenaries than it answers. Almost forgotten today is that little more than a year ago, the very same Haitian president was implicated in hiring his own mercenaries in a foiled attempt to wrest control of oil revenues from his political rivals. Then, the mercenaries were a group of Americans who were almost as out of place in Haiti as the recent group of Colombians. There is evidence that a Haitian with American citizenship, medical doctor and Baptist minister Christian Emmanuel Sanon, hired the Colombians and brought them to Haiti as personal security back in June. Some of those subsequently arrested say that their stated mission was to arrest the president and deliver him to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. But what could have been the motive of Dr. Sanon? The Associated Press reports that a friend of Sanon said that he had been duped by, quote, people claiming to represent the U.S. State and Justice Departments who wanted to install him as president, unquote. The friend claimed that Sanon had believed that the plan was to arrest but not kill President Moïse. If both Sanon and the mercenaries thought that the plan was to arrest President Moïse, why was he summarily executed instead? Who pulled the trigger? Who was really pulling the strings for these freelance mercenaries? In summary, according to the U.S. Department of Defense Law of War Manual, the act of being a mercenary is not a crime in customary international law, nor in any treaty to which the United States is a party. Mercenaries, however, must comply with the law of war and may be tried and punished for violations of the law of war on the same basis as other persons. States that employ mercenaries are responsible for their conduct, including their compliance with the law of war. And under the law of war, combatant status requires combatants to be commanded by a person responsible for his subordinates. This superior responsibility also applies to PMSCs and is specifically spelled out as an existing international legal obligation in the Montreux document. This command responsibility extends up from the tactical commander all the way to national command authority. The reality is that the use of QMOs is often intended to subvert the notion of state responsibility and accountability for the actions of the mercenaries controlled by them. Russia, in particular, is very careful to avoid a legal accountability trail from the actions of their QMOs in the field to the Kremlin. So too are some other countries, including but not limited to the United Arab Emirates and Iran, 
which I mentioned in previous episodes. There are ways to pierce through this legal impunity, this implausible deniability. To do so, however, requires forensic imagination and, most importantly, the willingness of governments to hold other governments accountable. I'm taking a short break between this and the next episode as I fly out to the greatest air show on earth in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. When I come back, I'll wrap up this series with an open discussion with some internationally known experts on this subject to brainstorm on what we can do to manage the risk presented by mercenary-like organizations. Join me and them on the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.